All right, so uh, we as human beings that have uh, these things are receiving new messages all the time. And even if you don't have one of these things that's known as a, a phone, uh, then you're receiving messages all the time anyway. You drive or walk uh, down St. Catherine Street, you're seeing messages all over the place. A lot of them you wish you didn't see, but you're seeing messages all over the place. We're constantly being beckoned and called to hear different news and to then give ourselves to it. Jeff, in, in his prayer said the word heed. That's an old word, right? That hear, means hear and believe all in a four-letter word. It's, a, it's one of those good four-letter words that we should bring back. But we can hear and, and believe and, and obey. That's all wrapped up there. And that's what a good message is going for. They want for you to see it, hear it, believe it, and obey it. And what Jesus does in the first century is he sends these seven messages to seven of the churches. Now, these churches could be representative. They were certainly literal. They could be uh, church periods throughout church history. There's all kinds of theories, but we know that these are literal churches, and we know that these churches were actually going through these things. Now, at the time that the, this was being written, Jesus, we're going to talk about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection this morning, but Jesus rose, uh, began his church through his people, lots of people uh, understanding who he, who he is, what he did. They were coming together to, to worship him. They were coming together for, for teaching and preaching, but not just in this setting. They were also coming together throughout the week. They were having meals together. They were sharing their things. Uh, people were selling their, their material goods so that they could provide for other people. This was really the church moving. It wasn't just we're coming in for this religious thing. This was the church really being the church all the time and new people being added all the time to this church because it was so attractive, People wanted the church and they would say, well, how, how did this whole thing form? They would talk about Jesus and they'd say, well, that's even more attractive than this community. And so people were being added to the church all the time. It was this new movement that was taking place. It was hip, trending, all these fun things. But one of the things that was happening is that there was a severe persecution that had come on the church. People were dying because of their, their belief their acknowledgement of who they believed that Jesus really was. Things were not easy for the church. And so Jesus writes these messages, these letters to his church. Now, Revelation is an interesting book. It's the last book in the Bible. Okay, so if you actually wanna follow along, we have Bibles out in the popcorn area. Don't know what to call it still. Uh, you could go to the end of your Bible. You could find the book of Revelation and we're gonna be there. It's crazy because its genre is apocalyptic. We don't read apocalyptic literature anymore. And if you do, it's kind of weird. So it's apocalyptic, <clears throat> it's prophetic, and it has history and a letter in it. So it's kind of a strange book. But the big summary of the book of Revelation is that Jesus wins. <clears throat> uh, if anyone has a cough drop, uh, and you want to donate that to me immediately, that would be phenomenal. I forgot to grab water and um, it, the like whole clap system doesn't make it provide. Can't strike a table and have water appear. This, you know, so yeah. Oh, wow, this is really good. So just bow your heads and pray real quick. While I... All right, so that's good. Here we go. Uh, so the summary of the book of Revelation, all confusing, but the summary is that Jesus wins. Jesus is the great hero of this confusing book. And the letters that we're gonna look at, they apply to us today. Because the reality that Jesus wins still applies to us. And the situations that these seven churches are going through, though maybe don't directly apply to us, they, they still generally apply to us. So we can, we can study them, look at them, and benefit from them. Because if we're honest, the, the church, our, our world, is confusing, it's troubling. There aren't great things happening in, in all areas of the world. Has this been sanitized? I haven't used it this morning. No? Do you believe in, in dish soap? <laughs> These are all important questions to ask. I'm, I'm just trying to give you an example of how to be safe this cold season. <clears throat> As I have a cold and I'm hacking up here. So um, the church, we, we live in troubling, confusing times. 
Um, lots of lots of, of messages that are bombarding us that uh, there's no way that, that the Bible could be true. Uh, you know, we think that the, the, the end of the world is coming because something's happening in Jerusalem with Donald Trump and a new antichrist is rising up, like all kinds of strange, weird things. But the reality is that the church worldwide is in confusing and troubling times. And so what I wanna do is actually get into the text because I think that as we examine the text and, and hear from Jesus again, we're going to see how relevant his words are for us today. So we're going to be in Revelation 2, but I'm going to start in Revelation 1, and I'm going to start in verses 17 through 19. So we'll put them all up here for you. If you don't have a Bible with you, but please take one as you leave. John, Jesus's buddy, is writing this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. John is engaging with with Jesus. He knew Jesus already. John spent a lot of time with Jesus in his life, but Jesus is reminding him of what is true. He's reminding him of this good news that I came, I was the living one. I came and laid down my life. And then I I took it back up again and I hold the keys over everything. Death seems to be the one thing that nobody can beat and Jesus has the keys to it. So Jesus is the one that's in charge of all things. When Jesus came, this is what we talk about when we talk about the gospel being good news. When Jesus came, he came for rebellious people like you and I. You and I, though this might take a lot of work to get to and we'll do it throughout the series, but you and I are naturally rebellious. We are. Watching a, a show last night, uh, I forget the name of it, Last Man on Earth or something like that. And, and it's this guy and he's the last guy on earth. I mean, it gives away the whole thing, right? And he's driving and he just drives through the stop signs. Because why would he stop? He's the last guy on earth. And then he meets the last woman on earth and she gets in and she says, we need to stop. He's like, lady, there's no traffic. Like there's no one left here on earth. We can rebel against the stop sign because that was made for us, right? But we, we are rebels. We, we want to rebel. We want to rebel against God. We decided that we have a better plan, a better vision for our life. We could be better captains of our ships. We would like God if he wants to give us some extra stuff, but we're not interested in submitting all of our lives to him. And so we're tainted. We're stained. We could never be brought into the presence of God on our own. We could never do enough good things or not do enough bad things. That's religion. God is not a God who's sitting in the sky waiting for us to finish our life so that he can then weigh things in the balance, see how things worked out and maybe let us in if we do enough good things. No, God says, if there's one ounce, one whatever measurement you wanna use of unrighteousness, imperfection in you, you can't be in my presence. It won't work. I'm holy, you're not. But the good news is that I sent Jesus to be holy for you and he will wear your unholiness on the cross and give you his holiness so that you could be in my presence. All you need to do, which is a lot, but all you need to do is acknowledge that you can't do it on your own. You need to acknowledge that you need to be forgiven. You need to acknowledge that I am the ruler over your life. And then you get the holiness. Then you get eternal life. Then you get this relationship with God that begins now and never ends. And God frees us when we say, yes, I want that. God frees us. Revelation 1, 5 and 6 says this. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So Jesus comes, dies, frees us, then rises again from the dead. Last week we talked about the resurrection and how many of us have issues with that. We're not gonna go into that in depth this morning, but we believe that Jesus rose from the dead and he's alive and he's here in our presence now, that he's not distant. He's not looking to do his monthly check-in. He's with us. And we're gonna see that in the text this morning. But I just wanna acknowledge this before we move into anything else. Uh, I, I am not the senior pastor. Jesus is the senior pastor. Jesus is the one who's in charge of this church. I am not in charge of this church. 
None of the leaders are in charge of this church. You're not in charge of this church. It's his. He bought her. He purchased her. He has freed her. And he has a mission for her here in this city at this time. You see, the church is all about him. It's always about him. Everything should point to him. It should never be about us, about our name, about our thing. Any vision that we're proposing should really be about the name of Jesus being demonstrated and declared in more places and in greater depths in our own lives. So the church is not about you and it's not about me. We're part of this and it's all about Jesus, our senior pastor. So now we're getting into our text. Ephesus, that's a city that Jesus is writing to, the church in Ephesus, city of about 200,000, which would have been a very large city. Uh, it was a business hub because all of the, the business coming through the Aegean Sea would go through Ephesus. It was the political administrative capital of Asia Minor. And it was a religious hub as well because the, the temple of Artemis or Diana was there. Uh, one of the great, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world uh, being this temple. So a lot of movement in the city, business, political, uh, religion, people would come to visit and see this place. It was, a, it was a crazy city. Paul established the church about 30 to 40 years before this letter is now being written uh, to here. So so things are going on in this city against God. Paul comes in, starts talking about Jesus. Church is being formed, is established. And now Jesus writes 30 to 40 years later. And here we go. Chapter two, verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now that might be confusing, right? Why is all this mystical language there? What, what you could do if you had a Bible is just jump back one verse into chapter one, verse 20, because it begins to define what these terms are. And this is a, a, something small, but as you're reading scripture and you're confused, look for other places in the Bible uh, to determine what that thing actually is. So don't say, well, the angel of the church and seven stars, I think the seven stars mean this. And I think the seven golden lampstands mean this. You can't do that with the Bible. You really can't. You don't get to define what it is. It's not like Mad Libs where you just fill things in the way that you want for them to be. Not that way. So in verse 20 of chapter one, it says, uh, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, here we go. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so the, this angel, um, the, 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 yeah, the word for angel is angelos, uh, which could mean messenger. So as we see in, in verse one, to the angel, the messenger of the church of, of Ephesus, we, we could get hung up on, is this an angel? Is this a pastor? Is this a bishop? Is this just a messenger? And what's most important in this text is not who the angel is of the church, but that Jesus is actually speaking to his church. Most important is that these are Jesus's words to his church, that Jesus actually walks among his church, that it's not about the angel, it's not about the seven stars, the, the lampstands, it's about Jesus mingling with his church. You know, before any of you came in here this morning, uh, the, the team that plays music, myself and a few others were in here, and we were praying and we said, Jesus, you walk amongst your church. Would you walk amongst these aisles uh, this morning? We know theologically that you're already here, that you dwell in your people, but would you walk through and would you do the work that you love to do of lighting up hearts? Would you bring this, uh, would you bring this afresh to us for those, of, for those of us who have been believing for a long time? But would you bring this for the first time for those of us who have never experienced who Jesus really is? And this, this is good news for us as a church, that Jesus, as he's walking through and amongst his church, he knows what we're going through. He knows what you're struggling with. He understands the doubts that you have. He knows the things that you're wrestling with. He knows your uncertainty. He knows the things that you're doing well and he knows the things that you're not doing well. He knows you. He really knows you. And he understands the struggles. He understands the reality. He's not a distant God and this is good news for us. This is good news for us. In, in verse two of Revelation chapter two, he says, I know your works. I know your works. There's nothing hidden from God. 
And this can be good or bad, right? Because you'd say, ah, there are things I don't want for anyone else to know about me. And God knows that about you. And you say, ah, that's so bad. I, I, I want to hide that from God. And yet it's also good for, for him to know about these things because he knows about these things. He can actually do something about them. You see, God is not surprised by our bad works. God's not surprised when you do something in opposition to him. He knew that was going to happen. He's not surprised by your bad works at all. In fact, when we do, when we are at our worst, when we feel like I'm not acceptable to God at all, he also knows his works for us. Do you realize that it's because of your bad works and my bad works that he actually came so when we're having a hard time working out our faith, our belief in who God is and what he's done, when we're struggling with temptations or we feel like oh, I'm the worst follower of Jesus that has ever existed, he wants for us in those moments to remember his works for us, that we should be expectors of grace. That in moments of rebellion, we should expect that God is going to give us gifts of grace, things that we don't deserve but he also knows the works that are really good. And he commends the church for these works. And we'll get into that in just a minute. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. Toil and patient endurance. This is labor, right? Hard labor and waiting in the midst of hostility. This is the, the reality for this church. This is what the church was going through on a regular basis. People in Ephesus were not happy that the church was moving and thriving. Ephesus was a hard culture to bring the good news of Jesus to because there was a major cult and a major business that was built off of that cult. And what was happening is that the Lord's work was prevailing. And when the work started happening in Ephesus, the people who were involved in witchcraft brought like $3 million worth of books and were throwing them to be burned, right? Radical transformation was happening in this place. Businesses were going out of business because no longer were people following these false gods. And when, when money is no longer being brought in, people lose their minds and freak out and want to destroy the one that's getting in the way. And so as people are going about their business of the gospel, as people are proclaiming and declaring this good news about Jesus, there are enemies in the city that are very unhappy. But Paul says something interesting to the church in Ephesus that I want to read to us. He says in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Don't be deceived that your enemies are the, the people in front of you. Oh, no. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Jesus understands this as well, that this great war, this great battle, this great thing that's taking place is not against flesh and blood. It's against the evil one. And the evil one's influence inside of Ephesus that would love to snuff out the church, that would love to discourage her, that would love to destroy her and scatter her so that the good news of what Jesus has done no longer is moving forward, that the enemy is unhappy. And yet Jesus commends this church. Jesus commends her for the work and the, the, the toil and patient endurance that she's having. In Montreal, if we're honest, if, if you try and talk to people about who Jesus is and what he's done, and you try and demonstrate the reality of, of what he's done for us and how you live, most often you're not going to be welcomed with open arms. When you talk about the church, what are people in Quebec gonna think about? They're gonna think about the church that abused people for many, many years here in the name of Jesus. They're gonna think about the, the, the church that came and took people's money. Uh, it, it, it hurts me sometimes to put a, a, a slide up here about money. Please text us your money. Because what I never want to do is have people take what the church did here and what we're looking to do as the church and say, ah, these are exactly the same thing. Because they're not. They're not. 
And so it's hard work to do ministry here. Other places, there are these things called mega churches, all right? This is churches with lots and lots of people. A mega church somewhere else might be one to 5,000 people. In Quebec, a mega church is like over 100 people. It's like, whoa, something crazy is happening here, right? And, and it's kind of no joke. It's like, this is, this is legit. That work here is hard. When you talk to people about Jesus, they're not like, yeah, wow, I have all of this understanding because I grew up going to this thing called Sunday school. Doesn't happen here. People have preconceived notions of who Jesus is and what he's done based on what they've heard about in history here. And so we have this long, long relationship often with people before they would ever want anything to do with Jesus, let alone submit their life to him. And so I want to commend you that Jesus sees your toil and your patient endurance. Your work here in Montreal is not in vain. Don't grow weary, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. And I would say the same thing to you. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in loving people as Jesus would love them. Don't grow weary in explaining to people again for the millionth time about what Jesus has done for them. Don't grow weary in this. Jesus sees, he's with you, he's mingling in your midst and he commends you for your your patient endurance and your toil. This is hard work here, but we're praying that Montreal would become the most reached city in the entire world. Because this great God who rose from the dead, who holds the keys to death and who offers life to anyone who will submit to them, he's the one moving here. And if he's moving, then anything is possible. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So you cannot bear with these people. This apostles, okay, This apostles, there there were apostles that were literally with Jesus, apostolic gifting, those who are starting churches, different places. But these people are showing up saying, hi, I'm apostle so-and-so. Beware of anyone who introduces himself or herself as apostle so-and-so. But these were itinerant preachers or missionaries that were coming along to the church saying, hey, I'm apostle so-and-so, and I'm here to add to the gospel conversation. If anyone wants to show up and add to the gospel, we're going to invite them to go to theater seven and watch whatever's in the AVX theater, right? We're not gonna let people come and add to the gospel because nothing can be added to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, nothing. Nothing can be added to scripture, nothing. So these were people that Paul also referred to as wolves. Now, how many of you want a wolf to live in your house? Good. I don't think any of you raise your hand. But you bring, you bring a wolf into your house, you want to make sure that you feed it really well. Otherwise, it's your children that will be eaten. You know, because do wolves ever start with the biggest? Do they go to the pack and they're like, that's, I, I'm, I have like short man syndrome, right? So if I'm looking around, I'm like, biggest guy, if I can take him out, everyone would leave me alone, right? But wolves do not have short man syndrome, right? So what wolves do is they look for the baby, they look for the easiest thing. And they as a pack come around and they want to devour that thing. And, and Paul uses this on purpose. Because he says, this is what wolves are like. John is calling them apostles, fake apostles. But this is what wolves want to do. They want to come in to these baby churches and they want to devour. These are devouring leaders that will draw people to themselves and then devour them and lead them away from any investment that you're making in them for good gospel ministry. And Paul warned, Paul warned the church of Ephesus that this was gonna happen. Acts, book of the New Testament says this. This is Paul's words to the church in Ephesus 30 to 40 years prior. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, within the church, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears." What's beautiful about this church in Ephesus is they were ready. 
They were ready to test people who came in and say, I've got a word to share. I got something to bring. Okay, great. Here's your doctrinal exam, right? This church was amazing for theology. They were eating up Wayne Grudem books. You're like, who's Wayne Grudem? You don't need to know him, but uh, he writes really big theological books, eating up John Frame books. Like these people love theology. These were the Andrew Fulfords, right? This is a whole city of Andrew Fulfords in the church. It's amazing. They love doctrine. They love theology. And wolves loved baby churches. When we first started our, our church, um, we, we were initially called Initiative 22. Uh, then we got better or worse. I don't know. We lost the number in the process. It became Church 21. Um, but when we started, it was amazing. We had all of these not yet Christians in our midst. And we had all these people who were ready to be leaders who were just showing up all the time. And they would say, hey, uh, yeah, I heard about what you're doing and uh, it looks really good. I love everything. Uh, I'm ready to be a leader. I'm like, cool. So we just met. Um, you don't know anything about me. I don't know anything about you. Do you know where we could really use help? Uh, is cleaning up our place because we had to sweep up every day. I'm like sweeping up our place and setting up our place because I set it up and either Jess or I or Brian and Severine are, are tearing it down. I'm like, we could use help. They're like, yeah, it's not my gift. Uh, my gift is really leading. I'm like, okay, so I'm just letting you know we don't need another leader right now. We need someone to lead in this way. Like, yeah, I don't think you're hearing me. We would get those people all the time and I would just invite them to leave right away. I'm like, ah, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. You want to come in here. You want to get some influence. You want to uh, set up all these side secret meetings with people. And you want to then take people away. And they're like, no, no, that's not what I'm doing. I'm like, yes, it is. You can just tell me the truth. And they never came back. We actually had at one point, a guy who said, my ministry is to play music. You need to let me play music. If you don't let me play music and lead, you are disobeying the Lord. I'm like, all right, well, the Lord didn't tell me that over my Cheerios this morning. So, uh, so you're not gonna lead yet. We're gonna give you a little bit of time to grow and get to know the church. He got so mad that he wrote letters, put his CDs, uh, wrote and put his background checks, like very strange things, and mailed them to everyone in our church. That would be a lot of money except he worked at the post office. So he illegally got into everyone's address. Like really strange stuff was happening. But this was the beginning of our church. Lots of wolves coming in being like, let me at the people. Just give me leadership with the people. I, thanks for getting all these people together so far, but I get it from here. And as we start new churches, as we keep going with this church, there will be new wolves that, that rise up. Paul says they're gonna come from within the church. And they're not gonna be outwardly like salivating and like, you know, blood streaking down their chin, right? They're gonna look really good. Jesus says they're gonna be wolves in sheep clothing. Sheep are like gentle and cuddly and like, I don't know, you wanna like roll around the dirt with them or something, like really nice and neat, right? But then like they take off their, their sweater and they're, they're like this big bad wolf and they just wanna eat you. And this is what's happening inside of the church. And the church in Ephesus are fighting against this, fighting against it. And here's the thing I, I wanna say about false teachers as well, wolves, 90% of what they say is true. And this is what makes it so deceiving. It's because if you don't know your Bible well, it all sounds really good. It all sounds amazing. It's just that 10% that's damnably wrong and will lead people away from life in Christ because they're looking to have people lead, I mean, follow them, not following Jesus. And so Jesus commends them for fighting. He commends them for having good theology. He commends them for knowing their Bible. And I would say, Church 21, we need to know our Bibles well so that we know Jesus, but also that we know what's false and what's being brought in to the church. But even though they knew their Bible really well, Jesus rebukes them for missing a vital piece of the church. And here it is. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. When you were first saved, when you were first rescued, you had this, this love that you've now abandoned. Now, this could be one of three things. Number one, it could be for Jesus. 
You, you abandoned me. I don't think so. These people seem pretty excited about Jesus. They love Jesus. They're fighting with good theology about who Jesus is. It doesn't seem like they abandoned Jesus. Secondly, it could be that they're abandoning love for one another, but I don't think so. They're taking care of one another. They're protecting one another. So the third option we have in this abandoning the first love is that they were abandoning their love for the world. They were abandoning their love for their neighbors. They were abandoning the love for those people who are now outsiders, even though they were once outsiders and have now been brought into the family of God. They're now losing their love for those who aren't in the family of God. And here's what the church does sometimes. I was reading a book this morning. I forgot the name of it. My wife accused me of skimming correctly. Um, I skimmed a whole book this morning. Um, but here he, he writes that people see their need for Christ and it's amazing. And then they become believers and followers of Jesus and that's awesome. And then they become a church attender so they come on Sundays and that's really great. We're excited. But then they become part of the Christian subculture and they start using weird words like sanctification. It's like, what does that really mean? Like, I don't know, but it's a big word I learned and I'm holding to it. And they, they only watch Christian movies and they, they kind of are pulling out from the world altogether because they're scared and they enter into this subculture. And then they become fans. They become fans of the church and they become fans of, of what goes on. They're not really full on members and servants. They're just fans of the church. And then fans become clones. We only make clones. If, if you want to be part of the church, become like me. Not primarily about Jesus and what he wants, but this is how we do church here. So just become like me. And then we become awkward, especially around non-Christians. And this process is very fast. The book is saying it, and I saw it as well in my own life, that you go from, man, I was, I was doing drugs, I was partying, I was doing all this. Now I don't even know how to talk to someone about Jesus. It's so strange. I can't talk to them about the change that he's made in my life. And this is what we do as a church. Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible that we have these people who are excited, they're experiencing God, and we bring them inside of the church and we say, you know, we don't want you to be too involved in those things anymore because you might be tempted toward those things. And, and some of that might be right, but we break people away from the relationships that they have with not yet believers so that they can serve in our church thing to make our church thing just move forward. When Jesus says, I'm not about your church thing moving forward, I'm about rescuing the world. This is what Jesus wants. And some of us feel, I, don't, I need to be more equipped. I need more training. I need more whatever. But this thing came to me this morning as, as we were driving into our gathering. Jesus once rescued a demoniac. Okay, the demoniac had thousands of demons living in his body. How many of you are really excited to say, if a guy or a gal with thousands of demons comes in here today, we see the demons leave, they meet Jesus. How many of you are ready to now send them out as a missionary? Probably not many of us are like, man, you have a lot of healing to do. You have to learn this. You gotta learn this thing. Make sure you read this book. Definitely go to this, right? We wanna just push our Christian subculture on top of them until we feel ready. Now you're good to go. Because if they go, man, they might still struggle with porn. If they go, they might struggle with drugs. When I was telling my fraternity brothers about Jesus, I was still doing drugs. I was not this perfect, like, oh, wow, amazing guy. Like, I was a mess. And yet I was seeing people meet Jesus. Jesus is not waiting for you to become perfect before he sends you onto his mission. In fact, as you're more of a mess, that's probably gonna speak louder as you're on mission. You're like, man, I still struggle with these things. But here's Jesus' deal with the demoniac. The demoniac comes to him, Jesus frees him. This guy becomes a follower of Jesus, then says, let me go with you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you go back to your city and you tell of what the Lord has done for you. Who comes up with that plan? Jesus. Jesus that Jesus wants for his people when they encounter him to now have a heart for the city, for people who are outsiders and to immediately go to them and not be so Christian subculture that you lose your heart for those who are far from Jesus. Do you realize that Jesus would go and he would touch lepers and Jesus never got leprosy? What I'm not commending you to do is go touch lepers, okay? 
But by being around people that are far from Jesus, that doesn't mean you have to become far from Jesus. It doesn't. That's not how the equation works. It's that the power of God leaps at people, grabs their hearts, changes them, and brings them into the family of God. That's what God does. And so Jesus is rebuking the church in Ephesus. Man, you love theology, you love doctrine. I'm so thankful for that. You love me. You just don't love the people that I love. I have a heart for the city of Ephesus and you're talking about how we get a you know, better bouncy house at your kids' events. They're little kids who don't know me. People who are far from me. It's not about doing a better event. It's the people of God that are the events being sent out into the city so that literally in our two gatherings, we're gonna send out a couple hundred events full of the spirit of God into Montreal today. The focus had become internal, but their identity was a lampstand. Lampstands are never for the lamp. The fire or, you know, we watched Shrek the other day, so like Tinkerbells or whatever's inside of your lamp, right? It's never about what's inside the lamp. It's about what the lamp does. And the lamp gives light into darkness and it attracts things, right? Bug lights are awesome because it constantly attracts things that want to eat you and you get to hear them sizzle. And, but it's attracting things to this good news and, and this wonderful aroma of who Jesus is. The church is not meant to be a holy huddle, we come in and we're like, oh yes, man, it's so hard out there. I'm so glad we're here together. Let's, ah, like, let's feel good about this. It's that we come together, we're reminded of who Jesus is, what his heart is, who we are, and then we, we're sent back out into the world, not as individuals, but as a family of God. You see, we're rescued to be light. We're rescued so that we would have life and be light, and then we're sent back out to proclaim against the gates of hell and death that there's real life. Real life is, is to be had and it's for outsiders. That anyone who's outside of Jesus can be brought in because Jesus came to die for all outsiders. See, Ephesus had this unholy pursuit of truth. Do you, do you know that that can happen? You can be so fixed in your pursuit of truth that it can actually become unholy and lead you away from the mission because the truth is you're part of the mission of God. You're part of this mission. So how do we know if we're becoming a church like Ephesus? How do we know if we're becoming a church like Ephesus? Well, we'll become defined by unnecessary secondary criteria. So let me just give you a few examples. Um, went away to Bible school nine months after becoming a follower of Jesus. Stopped doing drugs at that point. That was great. Uh, went there. And one of their things was that in order to go to their church gatherings, uh, you had to wear a suit and a tie. And so I, maybe some of you heard this, but like I would constantly push back. I'm like, well, when do you meet with Jesus? You know, do you always put on a suit and tie? I'm like, I meet with Jesus on the toilet and Jesus doesn't care if I'm wearing a tie on the toilet. Like Jesus is everywhere. So why do I need to put on a suit and tie? Because their argument was, well, when you meet with Jesus, you need to be wearing your best. And I'm like, so we only meet with Jesus for an hour and a half? What a horrible life. I'm meeting with Jesus all throughout the week. So when we become defined by the type of clothes that we wear, please wear clothes. Um, please do that. We're not into that. Um, the, if you're into eschatology, if you're like, I don't even know what that word means, great. Some churches lose their minds over, do you believe that Jesus is coming before the millennial, before the rapture, after the rapture? Do you believe in a rapture? You're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Good. I'm so glad you don't know what I'm talking about, right? But churches define themselves by that. If you're ever driving through the country and you're like, hmm, looking for a church gathering and you see fundamental, Bible-believing, pre-millennial church, just keep driving, man. <laughs> just keep going. Because subtitle would be like Reverend so-and-so with his 10-pound King James Version Bible, whatever. Just keep driving. That's Ephesus. Um, <laughs> instruments. Uh, same Bible school, same church is attached to it, uh, but these things over here, these are of the devil, all right? No joke, no joke. I'm like, oh, it'd be really nice if we had some rhythm. They're like, you mean like drums? 
But yeah, like those things you hit and then those things are like, oh, I mean, like that's involved in witchcraft. I'm like, well, okay. Yeah, I, someone said what? Like, thank you. That's what I was saying too. That's, this is the type of church we could become. The style that we worship in. Oh, we only play uh, hymns. Oh, we only play contemporary. It's like, if you're doing contemporary music, you're not doing contemporary music, right? Um, folk music, what, whatever, right? There are churches that we could just become about these things or the place. Some people rebuked me before for meeting in a movie theater. That's not really a holy space. I'm like, well, people still use the bathroom in your holy space, right? Like, when does this become an unholy space? I have all these great arguments with people, right? It always seems to revolve around bathroom humor for some reason. But anyway, I have little kids, so that's where I go to. Um, we could become a church like Ephesus if our primary focus is preaching, teaching, and information dispensing for us. That's what the Pharisees did. They were all about preaching, best preachers, Pharisees, all about teaching, all about giving more information, but just no transformation and no being sent out. We can become like Ephesus if we have lots of programs in our church that are just for our church, not for outsiders, because we'd only be about us. Or, and this is our biggest danger, and I felt this this week, that our church could become like Ephesus if we talk about mission and have a good theology of mission, but aren't on mission. We love to talk about it. We love to even look at other churches and be like, oh, we're more missional than them. Oh. We have Jeff Vanderstelt books in our lobby. <laughs> but the danger is that we don't do anything with that. So what does Jesus say to this type of church? Remember therefore from where you've fallen, Repent, which is a beautiful word that means turn around. Repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, remove your lampstand or remove your place as a church unless you repent. So Jesus comes and he says, remember your identity. Remember who I made you. You're alive, you're freed, and now live from that. Don't be a church that outlearns your obedience. That's often what we do. That's why that word heed is beautiful. Hear and obey. Listen and do. Let's not become people that read our Bibles, have lots of good biblical information, could give great theologies on things, but don't obey as well. Because Jesus always took his disciples to do after his teaching. See, Jesus wants for his lamps to give light. Jesus wants for Ephesus to have a heart for the city. And Jesus has no problem closing down local churches where the mission isn't moving forward. He doesn't. Jesus isn't weirded out when a brand gets removed. His church keeps growing and moving forward. If Church 21, my prayer since the beginning of the church is that Jesus, if we're no longer about you and your mission, would you just shut us down? Because I don't want to be doing something for me or for a name. I don't want for us to be doing busy church stuff that isn't really making an impact in eternity or in the city. And so at Church 21, our desire, what we want to grow into continually, because this is no nothing that we'll ever fully reach, is that we want to be a family of servants on mission. We do. And let me tell you, it's easier to be family and to serve people than to be on mission. It really is. It's easier to get in a room with people that you at least agree on about Jesus than it is to be on mission in a world where people are like, we don't agree. We don't see eye to eye on most things in your worldview. Mission is hard. But when we aren't on mission, it's because we've forgotten. Jesus says that. You've forgotten where you've fallen from. When we're not on mission, we've forgotten that at one point, someone came on mission to us and said, hey, you, you don't see what's really going on. You don't see what Jesus has done for you. You don't see that you can be rescued. You, you, you don't see how loved you are. And, and it's like, we have new eyes and a new heart, new mind, new desires. Like, oh, it's awesome, it's amazing, right? It's all I wanted to do when I met Jesus. I just wanted to talk to people all the time about him. Buying candy or soda. I'm like, did, did you know that your salvation's been bought? Like, I, I would just say it all the time. That's literally all I wanted to talk about. But mission's hard. 
And we're not gonna be on mission when we've forgotten because we have so many other things to keep going, but we've forgotten a primary identity. And so our mission, we say this a lot, so I'm not gonna get into this this morning, but our mission is really for the everyday. It's not that we're gonna put on a big event, though big events are great sometimes, it's in the everyday as you're going and eating with people, as you're celebrating with people, as you're serving people, as you're listening to people, as you're hearing their stories, as God is speaking to you about other people, then we're responding to him in the everyday things of life. We're not dragging people to our pastor and saying, would you meet with them so that you can be on mission to them? You have the same spirit that I do, that any of the leaders here do, that anyone in in the church ever in history has dwelling in you, he knows what they need. He can work through you. And mission is for the whole church, not just for a few. I say this all the time, but I think this is because I need reminders of this all the time, and, and we do as well, that mission is for the whole church. And mission, being on mission, is like inviting people into Jesus's house. We, we get all hung up on like, oh, what do I say? What am I gonna do? But when you invite people into Jesus's house, it's like, well, like what would we do if we got to Jesus's house? Well, this is what Jesus keeps in his cupboard, right? This is how Jesus is gonna act when he comes to the door. This is what Jesus has done so that we can actually come in to his house. You don't need to, in fact, I would advise against using a literal illustration of inviting to Jesus's house because people would think that you're delusional more than they probably already think. Um, but mission is like inviting people into Jesus's world and explaining who he is, what he's done, and how they can interact with him. So this morning, this morning, we have this beautiful opportunity to repent. Repent has traditionally been this negative word, but it's this beautiful gift that's been purchased for us by Jesus. That maybe you do mission out of duty. You're like, man, I'm on mission all the time, but it's out of duty. It's not really out of love for people. It's out of duty so that you can win an argument. You can put in your time. Maybe you repent from that because repentance isn't just of the bad things we do. It's the good things that we do for the wrong reasons. That's what differentiates Christianity is that we even repent for the good things we do for the wrong reasons. And so maybe we need to repent of how we do mission. Maybe need to repent and ask, Jesus, would you give me a heart for the loss? I don't have it anymore. Maybe we repent and we say, I, I've forgotten who I am. I've forgotten that I've been rescued. I've forgotten this is about you, not about me. I don't need to lose my mind over my budget, over my, my, my retirement, over my, how am I gonna pay for this? I want my focus to be recalibrated unto you and you alone. So the message this morning is not, hey, go try harder. That's religion. Don't go try harder but rather go to the gospel, go to the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Enjoy that. You've rescued me, Jesus. Oh, it's so good. You freed me. Thank you. You've given me love for you. That's amazing. And you've given me the opportunity to now go into the city and not waste my life on living it about me. But now I get to give away my life for you. And so more people will come to know you. Jesus isn't out to remove our lampstand. Jesus isn't waiting for more lampstands to be removed. He doesn't want for us to give up on what is true either, but he wants for us to give light. He wants for us to give attractive light, like a warm light is in the freezing cold. You wanna go to that place and hope that it's warm, and that's Jesus to this freezing city. And he ends the passage here with a promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Look at this promise. The one who finishes, you get to eat with me in paradise. That tree of life that was at the beginning, oh, it's gonna be there again in the new beginning. You get to eat of that with me. You get to share food with God. That's pretty outstanding trying to think of a word. It's amazing, incredible, fantastic. How would I get to eat with God? Well, because of what Jesus has done for us. And as we go out on mission, we get to invite as many as possible to come and eat with him as well. So the invitation is for you to eat with him, 
for you to enjoy him. That as you're reading the Bible, as you're praying, as you're fasting, as you're talking to God throughout the day, this is like eating with him. This is sharing a meal with him. This is enjoying him. And then mission is the overflow of that. Getting to speak about the way that God moves, the way that God acts, and the way that God wants to work in their life. And so we get to respond today. We get to respond. I believe this is all from, from God. And the way we get to respond is we get to remember. We get to remember what God has done for us. And the way we get to remember is that we get to eat. We get to eat. We invite every week people to come to, to this table up here where there's a loaf of bread and some juice and wine. And this is to be for us to, to remember what Jesus has done for us. That his body was broken on the cross for you. His blood was shed on the cross for you so that you could one day eat with him. And not just a one-off meal, but you could be in his presence forever. You could be his children now and you could be on his mission as part of his people now. So as we're responding this morning through eating, remember what he's done for you. As you're taking it, remember to that moment where you move from darkness to light. You move from death to life. And ask him as you consume the symbol of what he's done, that he would consume your heart for this city and for those who are far from him. We do um, this in a few different ways as well. Uh, some of you have different convictions about this. So um, some of you uh, come as a whole family. You bring kids, little kids, and you give them a piece of, of the bread and juice, and you're explaining to them, this is what Jesus has done for you. We want for you to believe in this one day. We know that you're not fully there, but, but you're working that out as a family. Others of you are saying, no, we don't feel good about that. We would rather have our kids wait until they profess belief in Jesus and they've been baptized. And that's so great. As a church, we just wanna say, as a family, we wanna leave that up to you to be able to minister that the way that, that you want to. So there's a lot of freedom in that. But that's how we're gonna respond. We're gonna ask the Spirit to speak whatever he needs to into our hearts from what we heard this morning. And then we're gonna sing and declare the realities of what God has done. So let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you came and did what we couldn't for, for ourselves. Thank you that we don't have to leave here trying harder, trying to do more, trying to be on mission better, but rather you're on mission right now. You're on mission in this room, calling our hearts back to who you are and, and the beauty of who you are. That, that this mission you are going to accomplish, you're gonna finish it. But Lord, how would you use us? We talk a lot about mission uh, here because you talk a lot about mission, God. You're obsessed with creating a people for your glory and for your name and for us enjoying you in that. So would you cause for those who are here who don't yet believe in you to believe this morning, that this morning would be the day where they say, Jesus, I need you to rescue me. I want you to be my leader. And would you do that and bring them into your family? For those of us who've been following you for a long time and even on mission, but who do it for ourselves or out of duty, would you change our hearts? Those of us who want nothing to do with those who are outside of, of the church, outside of your kingdom, your people, would you give us a heart for this world and for our neighbors. And Jesus, would you help us to respond in the way that you want for us to respond this morning? We love you and we need you for everything. Thank you for your word, amen.